We're going to have to teach the white people how to do something else. George Washington right. Carver to the rescue. Magical <laughs> black person that fixes things. I saw this in a Coen Brothers movie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> George Washington Carver, teach me how to do it. Hi, you're listening to Farm to Tabor. Today we're talking with Dr. Tim Fritz, historian and uh, specialist on race culture in South Carolina. Did I get that correct? Yeah, you got that correct. I am a historian of the early Carolinas. I do a lot of place studies, and so I will call myself a borderland scholar because my research thrives on competition and things that are not agreed upon. So early South Carolina finds itself uh, in a contested space between Spanish Florida, various indigenous groups who it actually belongs to, and then the incoming European British folks as well. And so I sort of analyze the three competitors um, as they struggle for influence and impact and to retain impact in some places and take over some other people in some other places. So Specifically, I look at race and religion and what that has to do with patterns of land settling, which obviously rice in the Carolinas is a huge part since rice is something that sets both the cultural norms, the rhythms of the week, the rhythm, rhythms of the day. And so it's very important. So that's what I study. I've published some things about the Anglican Church in South Carolina, in these rice-growing regions, places like Goose Creek, as well as some things about the use of enslaved military labor. So that's out there, too, somewhere. So, yeah, that's me, department chair, Mount St. Mary's. <laughs> nice. Approver of forms. Nice. Yeah, well, I mean, someone's got to do it. Um, So a little bit of background, how we know each other. So my husband, Rob, did a PhD in history at University of Florida, History PhDs take a very long time. So like he started grad school. I worked for a year. I started grad school. I finished grad school. I did a postdoc. Rob was still in grad school. <laughs> and so everybody that I knew from school had like left and moved on by the time I would, you know, <laughs> by the time I was done. And the historians were only halfway through their PhDs. So we just hung out with the history people. And that was nice. And then when you have a crop scientist hang out with historians, they learn things that they shouldn't know. And it's, there's no looking back. It's been great. So Tim and I, we go way back. Tim is the man who taught me how to drink whiskey. He was there for the whole character arc from like Mormon to whatever is happening now. <laughs> I was. I was. We're neighbors. So yeah, it was. Yeah. Buildings down. Yeah. So like, you know, history, you get all up in each other's business and just nine years at UF will like make you friends. So. Yes. Yes, it will. I got my Google Earth pulled up so I can look at rice plantations in the air. It helps me think. <laughs> like it gives me a gives like an artificial sense of order and control and allows me to focus <laughs> yes so where are these that you're looking at she's basically anywhere in south carolina you just mm -hmm. like zoom into a map marsh mm -hmm. um you can sort of see from the air like the different i wouldn't call them dikes what do you call the embankments like the embankments and the secondary dikes and the um dikes levees yeah i don't I haven't dealt much with rice. Like I'm more like a produce, vegetable, fruit, orchards kind of person. Rice culture in the U.S. is so specialized. Like they just do it in a few specific areas. And every 
for the audience. Everything is laser leveled and they have like two inch tall berms, at least in Arkansas, like you need level fields. And so it's kind of like patty rice, like the terraces you'll see in Asia, except it's a lot flatter. It's like two inch tall berms, like kind of wandering across the field. So you just have it divided into totally level parts. So that's what I'm used to seeing because that's like the one yeah. rice I interact with. African rice, you don't have to do all that. Um, oh. I don't know all the terms, so I'll just talk in normal talk. We can convert it into crop nerd if we need to, but I don't think that's always necessary. So I'm pulling up some South Carolina coastline because um, Carolina rice culture really hit a low point in the early mid 20th century, and now folks are bringing it back. Yeah, like if you look up. Um, Woodbine, South Carolina, mm-hmm. on like a satellite map, and look just to the left of that. Okay, along the river, and all those are like rice plantation lines. Yeah, I was gonna say, I think I found what looked like some rice fields, and then it's like Wicklow Hall Plantation. Boop. Ding ding. Ooh, we said Woodbine by Hilton Head. It's a little inland, but there's just there's a lot. If you follow the river like west. Mm-hmm. See, dyke, 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 rice parcel, rice parcel, rice parcel. Oh, yeah. Which river? Faded, obviously. Savannah River? The wrong place. Satilla River. S A T I L L A? Yes. And now that y'all are good southerners, you know it's not Satilla, it's Satilla. Not here. <laughs> Went on down the Satilla and yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. Seeing some stuff that looks like rice fields. Yeah, all these little squares in the marsh. So good. Okay, yeah. Found a bunch that looks grown over, but you can still see the squares. It's trees now, yep. but there's like squares in the trees. <laughs> yep. Exactly. Yeah. And then if you keep going on that river, like it keeps going. Mm-hmm. It's a lot. Oh, wow. That's good. Yeah. Those are long embankments. Yeah, like super long and like barely overgrown. So. Those would have all been dug and put in by hand. Yeah. So yeah, like the wildest part, if I remember correctly, we can get into the details of what Carolina rice culture was and how it happened. But the actual in the dirt, was it mud work is what they called it? That's what I saw called in some sources. I don't know if that's what they were calling it. Sure. (laughs) Yeah, the trenching and the irrigation management and the sluices and all that stuff. Because you just, <laughs> you got to get in there, dig stuff out and like clear uh, clear ditches. So you're doing a lot of that all season long is maintaining those irrigation works. And then once the harvest season is over, then they had to mill everything by hand really quickly before the main market for this, I think, was Lent season over in Europe. And so they had to hand mill everything really quick before Lent yeah. started, basically, like in time to get it on ships and arrive before Lent. So normally in agriculture you know like there's your growing season it's kind of some work then harvest season is your big rush and then you chill out but like no with this you just kept going which is a little unusual (laughs) it's a lot (laughs) it's a lot i think it was black rice was the book black rice was that judith carney yeah she was talking about you do the harvest and then you have to do like the hand milling and so you just be like up all day and all night pounding rice and like fatalities just went up during that time period because people are just working constantly and if you're already not feeling great from a season of trench work and malaria milling season was what took you out a lot of the time which is just it's wild those are bad days those are bad days yeah because like 
again, like even in today's agriculture, the emphasis is really on the growing and harvesting part. And then once the food is harvested or the crop is harvested, it's kind of like, and now it's not our problem anymore. Of course, what really happens is the bulk of the work in making food is the processing after you harvest it. Typically, the pattern now is like you grow corn or something and then you dump it off at the silo and the grain elevator guys take care of it after that. And they ship it along to Cargill or something and they mill it into cornmeal, high fructose corn syrup, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, what happens after harvest is like not the farmer's problem and they don't really think about that. And that's such a huge part of how people think about agriculture in the U.S. now because everybody who writes about it is a white landowner <laughs> and that's how they think about it. It's like not my problem. And so to see that process carry through all the way through with the same folks and just kind of like that disinterest in investing enough in the post-harvest processing just goes way back. I don't really know what to say about that, but I'm just like, wow, it still kind of works like that. The way it plays out is differently, but just the fact that the emphasis is and the amount of people we have and the work we have is sized to the grow up part. And then when it comes to food processing, we're just kind of like, well, we don't have enough people to actually do this properly. Let's just scram. That is like so still how it's done. Again, once you hang out with historians too much, uh, there's a whole bunch of patterns that you see in today's agriculture that are like, oh, it's kind of always been like this. This is not a new corporate thing. We've just always been like this. Um so I think race culture is a really good way to get a look at that. So should we like maybe start properly and go, Dr. Fritz, tell us about Carolina rice culture. We have a bunch of like settlers and colonists going, I want to grow rice, but I have no idea what I'm doing. How am I going to make this work? Sure. Well, I think you have, there are a couple ideas with what people thought that would be good crops to grow, right? So as you're sketching out plans for different colonies, particularly in South Carolina, and the Lord's proprietors who are behind the whole thing are trying to figure out like what sort of things should they promote? Because you have to recruit settlers, you have to recruit colonists. And so the idea is to get people to come, you have to have some sort of payoff or some sort of desire, especially if you're going to get a bunch of people from Barbados, which is where a lot of Carolinians come from originally. And people in Barbados are really doing just fine with sugar and making a lot of money. Is it overcrowding? Yeah, sure. But you really need to have some sort of hook to get people to want to set up shop in an environment that is much more tropical than English colonies generally would be in places like Virginia, you know, Maryland, Pennsylvania, and stuff like that. And so rice comes across their minds roughly, but they don't do anything about it in particular. And so you really start to see rice show up, I think, is around the 1690s. And that's for a variety of reasons. The first reason is uh, the slave trade. And so these slave trading ships would bring, the belief at the time was, you should bring food on the slave ship that enslaved people or recently enslaved persons were used to eating. You can't just give them anything. You want to give them stuff that they're used to. And so from that, you would have these Portuguese slave ships in particular. First, rice that came to South Carolina was in 1690 on a Portuguese ship. And so that ship has a lot of African rice on it. African rice had been cultivated a really long time in West Africa, Niger River, West Sudan, places like that. And so over there, that strain of rice was cultivated in the floodplains of that river. And so one of the things here is that the floodplains were very wide, but not very deep. And it was just kind of a seasonal thing that people did. It wasn't necessarily a staple crop, so to speak. You had all sorts of pearl millet and other sort of cereals. But 
it was easy to transport. And so the Portuguese put a bunch of it on the boat when people came over. And so that's how it sort of gets introduced. And so when you would pick up or purchase an enslaved person, the accompanying wisdom would be, you should get some stuff that they're used to eating. So you pick up some stuff and then you don't know how to grow it. If you're a European colonist, you have no idea. But there's a good chance that your enslaved person does. And the reason there's a good chance is because Carolinians around the 1710s or so really began to search for what who they believed were Africans that knew how to grow rice. And they did not know. A lot of this stuff is made up. It's branding. And so you would have like the people, marketing of all of this is like, yeah, it's like establishing different types of people like Angolans do this and they are prone to run away or whatever and stuff like that. And all this stuff is invented for a variety of reasons. And a lot of the branding was based on, you know, where the slave ship left from and not about who actually was part of the cargo. And so even that stuff was false, but they got in their minds eventually and they weren't entirely wrong. And that folks from like the Senegambia region down to the Gold Coast had the most experience with rice. And that does track with those who lived along the Niger River and stuff like that. And so those people become recruited because of their likelihood that they'll be able to grow rice successfully. No one knew it was going to work out, but turns out it did because these folks were extremely resourceful and had intimate knowledge about how to adapt rice, or in this case, Oriza glabarima, which is the African strain of rice that they were using in West Africa. They were used to adapting it to various microclimates. And so because of that, they were able to adapt it to what was going on in South Carolina because the river didn't flood in Africa. The river didn't flood the same way every time. You had some people who were from down the Gold Coast who were from the Niger River Delta. The floods there are going to look a lot different than they do further up in the Western Sudan or in the headwaters up in Mali, you know. And so you had a group of people who had varying and disparate experiences with adapting rice culture to various environmental circumstances. And because of that resourcefulness, it's recognized and slave owners seek out this type of African, hoping that they can apply the same sort of ingenuity to the marshes in South Carolina. And they end up being able to do that. Now, the interesting thing is, you know, in Africa, you didn't mess with the land so much. You adapted the type of rice that you grew to the type of environment that the river gave you. In the Carolinas, it was almost the exact opposite. They basically formed the marshes to be most suitable for the type of rice that they were most used to growing, to the Glatarima. And they set up shop, uh, started to do that, bringing tent knowledge, or tent engineering knowledge, the ideas of flooding a marsh and then leaving mangrove trees and then sort of blocking off these various squares, burning the squares, Cleaning them out. And it took two to eight seasons, really, to get a rice parcel like ready for intense production. And this is all, you know, things that Africans invented um, in their adaptation of Glabarima to South Carolina. The colonizers had no clue, you know, how it sort of works. And so the slave culture of rice grew out of rice culture. And the rhythms 
of slave labor grew out eventually of how rice was operated. And so you take a couple of seasons to prepare a parcel, and then you'd have different rhythms and different people who did various jobs, did the trenches, doing the other work and things like that. And then to incentivize all this, we use the task system, right? The task system said that the harder you work, you can have some days or one day at least to grow some things for yourself. And so the efficiency was incentivized through that. And so that kind of kept things in rhythm. You would work a certain number of days and then you'd have the last day to either fish, grow rice for yourself, which people still did, and then otherwise carve out some sort of autonomy within slave culture for slave persons themselves. And so that's kind of how it got started. And in a lot of ways, you know, Africans not only introduced the knowledge, but even the task system itself, which is usually recognized as a method of slave control, really mirrors some of the things that African cultures would do in West Africa when they took over a nation. They would also put work uh, growing rice and also use the task system as well. And so it's sort of a mesh of how do you control labor? How do you incentivize the greatest production of the agricultural knowledge of the laboring folks? And then how do you make a profit out of it? And so that's how it started yeah, in the 1700s, you know, going into the 1800s and then lasting to a couple of decades after the Civil War even. Yeah, and it seems like there are a few rice plantations that carried on through the mid-20th century. I actually have video from one of them. But yeah, it really degraded because the workforce that knew how to do that didn't feel the need to stick around post-Civil War in a lot of cases. Although like the people who did, I think this is where Gullah and Geechee culture comes from, is... Correct. Yeah, a lot of the folks who are growing rice. And like you mentioned with the test system and that labor organization, so I don't want want to say it was more hands-off. Like in terms of like, in terms of micromanaging, there are systems that are a lot more micromanaging. Like you have Harriet Tubman, Frederick Douglass, Sojourner Truth. They're coming from small farms. So when they're speaking to that experience, they're like constantly in the space and just sharing space with the people who own them all the time. Whereas the test system, there's such large operations with large crews of enslaved people you could go a couple of days without seeing a supervisor under the test system sometimes. Yeah, a couple of weeks. Yeah, it was, even yeah, it was more hands off. Slave owner. Yeah, so I don't want to be like, and it was chiller because you had your community, you know, but like it was a different routine, it's a different system. And so that is sure. part of why Golan Geechee culture managed to keep a different language, managed to keep a lot of practices because I won't say freedom, but a little more autonomy probably in the way they managed that. Whereas again, like, Further north, you had smaller family farms, and it was just like a more intimate kind of impression where you're just kind of like up in their face all the time. I think like the point of that is there's just a lot of ways to oppress people. It's not like, oh, this one's good, that one's bad, but like there's just a lot of different ways to keep people under your thumb. And boy, we've explored all of them. So like kind of to speak to what you'd mentioned there with there being different ways to grow rice back in West Africa and back in Central Africa because you just have different environments. So for example, sometimes you would plant it like the river floods, and then you plant it either before it floods or as it draws back down so that's one way to do it is like post or pre-flood rice another way to do it is like you mentioned in the delta so it's tidal flooding instead every 12 or 24 hours 25 hours uh, you have flooding so you need different irrigation systems to deal with that i think like you mentioned when we talked earlier a lot of these rice plantations weren't just one location they had like a bunch of different patches all over a section of marsh so you might have some that are closer to the delta there's more brackish water they're more tidally influenced they have 12 to 25 hour water level fluctuations Whereas further upriver, maybe more of a seasonal thing. So you do wind up with a, a lot of different people who know how to handle different parts of that. So like 
people learn from each other, people train each other. So between all those different skill sets coming together in that one place, then you can manage all these different parts of the river. Great, we can expand our rice system infinitely. Yay. What I think is the cool part, like technologically speaking, is what they would do for the tidal area. So this is what we call like the tidewater in the south, right? River mouths where the water level in the river will go up and down with the tide because when the tide rises, water flows downhill, right? So the ocean's not as downhill anymore. Right. <laughs> the river backs up. And so what'll happen is even though there's no salt water from the ocean getting into the river, it's not flowing backwards, but the river will get deeper because the freshwater backs up. And so you'll get these tidewater areas where you can dig like an irrigation channel and at low tide, you can drain the field and at high tide, you can fill it up. So that was a lot of what that irrigation system, at least around the coastal and the tidewater areas revolved around was like tidal timing. So basically they're using the moon as an irrigation pump, which I think is very clever. You know, uh, it's a very good system, sustainable. That thing's probably not going to fall out of the sky anytime soon. It's renewable energy, yada, yada. So it's a really clever system. And it's a shame that they couldn't just leave people alone and let them do it at home in peace. But that is the technology they were bringing over. And that's the technology that all this wealth that was built in South Carolina relied on was people who knew how to do this, knew how to dig the trenches at the right depth to catch the high tide. If you're closer to the ocean, you are going to start getting some brackish water. So glabarima rice, some strains will have some salt tolerance. And so you have to know like, okay, I'm going to let some high tide in and it's going to be a little bit salty. And then as the water evaporates, you know, it's going to get saltier. Can our rice take that? And you have to get the timing right so you can let it out in time. It's very complicated. Part of what this interests me for is we have this impression, I think, in the modern U.S. among lay people that farm labor in general and enslaved labor in particular was just like brute force manual labor. It was just like unskilled. Which, number one, you shouldn't have to be skilled labor to not be enslaved, you know? And then number two, there's no education bar. Oh, you're smart? We'll let you go. Like, that's not a thing. That's not how this works. The fact that these people were so knowledgeable was precisely what made them valuable on the auction block, you know? I may be hanging out in the tech industry too much. <laughs> you have a lot of tech bros who are like, well, it's okay if the country is spiraling to inequality because people love me and... I have a highly valued job and I'll always be safe. And I'm like, oh, you think that's how this exactly. works? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what we're getting at here in terms of modern applications for this knowledge. Yeah, I think the idea, I think part of the historical baggage that comes along with that has a lot directly to do with rice, mm -hmm. actually. Mm -hmm. You know, because in you know, 1739, you have the Stono Rebellion in September 1739. Um, happens just outside of Charleston, which is a rice growing region, takes place on the Stono River, which had the type of agriculture that we were just talking about, very close, about three miles in from the Atlantic Ocean. And in that uprising, you had one enslaved person uh, in particular uh, named Jimmy, Jimmy with an E, not not, who comes one Sunday morning and decides that. Now is the time. There's about to be a law coming out in at the time, in 1739. They're about to enact a law that said that all white males over the age of 16 had to be armed all the time. Even in church or even no matter where you are, but it's compulsory weapons carry because the enslaved population, the African enslaved population had reached what they believed was not a safe level. Three to one in a lot of cases made a lot of people pretty nervous because mm -hmm. you know how you're treating individuals. And mm -hmm. the fact that there's three of them to every one of you, 
makes you feel like you need to be strapped all day long. But what's interesting about this is because of the expertise of rice labor, those folks are, they can read, many of them. They are able to read maps and charts. They're the, the watermen and other enslaved logistical labor are used to take the, sort of the barges and the skiffs up and down the river. Yeah, they're like so pilots. Very, yeah. yeah, super aware of their surroundings, you know, able to read distances of maps, and most importantly, able to read newspaper, which says that everyone's about to have a gun. And so if you wanted to perhaps evacuate yourself from this situation, this coming up weekend might be the time. And so Jimmy attacks and kills a store owner and takes the guns from that particular store, distributes the guns amongst his friends. And they Did the newspapers to... say, white folks, come pick up your guns at Jones's General Store? <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Jones's General Store. <laughs> yeah. And it proceeds to so go out and murder many plantation owners and other enslavers and saving some. The rebellion swells to almost 100 and then um, as it makes its way south, we believe they're going south towards Spanish Florida as it gets further south. They're eventually discovered by a complete accident. And then the South Carolina militia eventually comes and puts down the rebellion. Some of the leaders escape. Their heads are cut off and put at regular intervals on the road leading out of the area, just in case anyone else had the same idea. You can see the decaying head of your compatriot and then be convinced otherwise, so they hope. But more important, I think, than the rebellion for this conversation, more important than the rebellion itself is a backlash to that. So in 1740, there's a law that comes out, the uh, Slave Act 1740 in South Carolina, which says mostly that you can't teach enslaved people how to read anymore because they got too smart. And they got too smart because they were making all this rice. Right. South Carolina produced something called Carolina Gold, which was one of the most popular cereals throughout, definitely in England, elsewhere in Europe. And so they were all in one trick pony on the production of that particular rice type, right? Which wasn't glabarium anymore. It's a sativa rice, completely different. But that's where the money came from. And it relied on not just agricultural knowledge, but logistical knowledge working understanding of English and probably the understanding of a few African languages to be able to differentiate and mediate to make the logistical system run after the actual rice is harvested, right? And so after that, So yeah, organizing skills, yeah. Right. All those things, you're not allowed to teach folks how to read anymore, and then you're not allowed to let people gather, you know, we're talking about the task system. People can't gather in groups of five or more unsupervised. And so it's at that point, I think, that the stereotype comes that enslaved labor doesn't have smarts, that they're all illiterate and they just do what you tell them to. And if you got one that could read, ooh, that was a big deal. Can you believe Phyllis Wheatley? Oh, my goodness, she can write. Where that was knowledge that was quite common in the dry stage, in those initial economic stages in the colonies. And so you benefit off of that knowledge and then it gets too big, you get nervous and you cut it off. And so, yeah, I, I think it's very interesting that this idea that labor doesn't have knowledge is because people were afraid that if the labor had too much knowledge and got too numerous, well, perhaps they wouldn't be the labor anymore. We can't have that. 
Mm-hmm. And so it sort of works both ways, this idea of labor having knowledge and then relying, in fact, on the knowledge of the labor. It's a very difficult balance, I think, historically, to, yeah. to walk that. Yeah, so this is like a thing that kind of comes up, you know, it's just like, well, wealth behaves this way. And you're like, well, actually, they don't know what they're doing. They have to experiment too. So there are a lot of tensions, and you can see this as slavery systems in various parts of the Americas are formed and experimented with is like the people in charge of it didn't know how to keep people in slavery securely at first. They had to learn just like everyone else. So, you know, like you mentioned, at first they're like, oh, wow, there's these really smart, skilled people. We'll just put them to work for us. And then they're like, oh, wait, they don't like that. Oh, we're going to have to like think through supervision here. And they learned that the hard way by fucking around and finding out. And yeah, uh, indeed, yeah. And so it was really interesting to me, like I think accounting for slavery by Caitlin Rosenthal was pretty good. And it kind of mentions some of the tensions that were here. She was like, yeah, a lot of people even after the slave code said you can't teach enslaved people to read and write, would do it anyway. Because literate employees are like, literate forced captive sure. labor are just like so useful. Yeah, they were pissed. They're like, what do you mean I can't do this? Like, that's my yeah. money. Yeah, exactly. You know? They're like, well, a lot of, like, especially later in the US because the transatlantic slave trade was cut off and so you couldn't just bring in new people anymore. So it's like, okay, we're just stuck with limited domestic supply of captive labor. And so renting people became a really big business. You'd have like small family farmers who are like, I'm independent. I don't own anybody. I just rent my labor from like a neighboring bigger plantation or whatever. And if you're renting people out, the more skilled they are, the more money you make. And so there was a really good financial incentive to have enslaved people like as highly trained and educated as possible. So that's really interesting is like, I think currently we're we're dealing with a situation where we have an upper class that's nervous about the public being too educated. <laughs> There's a lot of attacks on liberal arts education, like people have too much perspective on our history, what's going on, what we've been up to. Um, we have to undermine that education, cut the funding, get people to think they don't want this, call it useless, that kind of thing. So not the same situation at all, but a very similar drive of like, oh, they know too much. <laughs> we better roll back in order to keep ideological control. And so I think if you're living in the current moment, it's very easy to think, oh, rich people have just always been against education. And that's just not the case. Like if there's a situation where they think they can profit from people being smart, they're all for it. It's only when education is actually like empowering the people who have it (laughs) that it becomes a problem. Yeah. I mean, there's like weird divides. I think in the case of the Carolinians, it opens up a divide between those in power who may or may not have been like present. Right, there's absentee landlords or people who are running the colony who aren't always even around, right? So you're taking directives and stuff from England, and they say, "Well, you all do this." And then if you're on the ground, even if you are wealthy, you're like, "Whoa, whoa, 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 wait a second. And then you have the lower people who are like, "Wait, whoa, 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 even way more of a second, right? And so it ex- it just exploits a lot of divides. You're like, the government's taking my money. They want they want me to be great. Stuff like that. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it's interesting. Yeah. Well, and like this came up a lot. So my husband Rob did his PhD in Haiti right before the revolution, right? And so a lot of similar tensions show up there because it's a similar economic environment, just with sugar instead of rice. And so they had this constant tension of like, yeah, we want more enslaved people because then we'll make more money with their labor. But like you mentioned, the higher the ratio of enslaved to free white people, then the white people start getting nervous because they're like, mm, I'm outnumbered. And so France had an active effort underway to like get more white people to the colony. But like nobody wanted to go because it was colonial Haiti. So they had a whole thing of the crown was very invested in like trying to keep a balanced population for like security reasons. And the folks who were actually in colonial Haiti owning plantations were like, no, 
I only want people I can force to work. Who are these other hosers you're sending over here? And they were very upset about it. So yeah, like you mentioned, like there can be some real tensions between maximizing profitability, maximizing security. So you have different, like, it's not just all white people being on the same team. Like there's like different crews of white people at each other's throats. How oh, the, yeah, yeah. What's the best way to exploit other people's labor? I think what we're talking about here is called Creole governance, a colony where the people on the ground are making tons of money from maximizing exploitation. And then you have folks kind of in the capital going, oh, this doesn't look very stable. <laughs> you know? Oh, it's yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know what that brings to mind, actually, is the colony of Georgia, mm-hmm. right? Which is originally, it starts in 1733, is originally a philanthropic colony intended for the worthy poor, not the mm-hmm. other poor, the worthy ones. The good poor. debtors yeah. and stuff like that. They're supposed to make, you know, silk, hemp, flax, and wine. Those are things we're supposed to grow. All huge industries in Georgia now. Yeah. Yes, yes, huge. You know, I don't know if you've had Georgia wine, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> You know, a lot of the stuff is kind of a little bit not not well thought out. But the deal is, is that slavery was seen as degrading the value of white labor. And so we're not going to exploit them this way. We're going to exploit debtor poor people from England. We're going to ship them here pretty much against their will. And then we'll exploit them. But don't worry, it's not slavery. And so you should give money to this most worthy and noble cause because we don't believe in that. And as soon as they show up, well, who's next door? Oh, the Carolinians and the Rice. And so they're looking across the street and these poor folks from England are like, well, hey, this kind of sucks. It's hot and we don't know how to build houses. To your earlier point, can we rent some enslaved people? Okay, sure, you can rent some enslaved people. Enslaved people come over and build all these things. And like, hey, that was actually pretty awesome. Can we just have them? And James Oglethorpe, who's the head of the whole thing, member of parliament, veteran of all these wars and stuff like that. He's like, well, I'd prefer not. And eventually he gets pushed out of the governorship because the renting of the enslaved people was enough damage in itself. People had one taste. The exploited people had one taste of exploiting somebody else. Fascinating. And then they couldn't let go of it. And so slavery was outlawed from, I think, 1733 to 1750. That's not very long. By 1750, they're like, eh, we're just going to be like everybody. Even after Stono. Stono's in 1739. <laughs> and so they saw what happened and wow. still said, you know what? We're still going to try it. We'll just take our chance. <laughs> just like, I can handle the peril. <laughs> yeah. Gosh. Yeah, it's wild. <laughs> it's just so darn catchy to not have to do things yourself. What can I say? Ugh, yeah. Really that GPT of colonial times. <laughs> Too soon? <laughs> just like, just try it. Just try it. It'll be fine. It's good. <laughs> you don't have to do this yourself anymore. Should we play the the rice plantation yeah. video? I sent you the link. So what we're seeing, it's a home movie discovered on a Willtown Bluff plantation of a rice harvest. So it starts out like a classic home movie. It's like, here's a beautiful, cute child playing in their playhouse. Here's cute white lady in a cute dress. Here's a kid playing with their pony. Who's that lady in the back? when you're feeding the chickens so this is this is from the 40s here's a guy walking a cow there's some kind of plow in the back with a guy driving the reins his coat was very stylish i liked it i know it would look kind of snappy i was like i want to know what his story is here we have people harvesting the rice by hand with sickles and there's no sound in the video but you can tell someone's probably singing because their movements are in sync so that's interesting Mm. here's a kid banging on cymbal in the field and then we're about to yeah, here's a guy standing up on a wood stand 
flinging a whip around. So that's to keep the birds away. I'm pretty sure is what they're doing there. And then some people are like cooking something or like doing something with the fire, picking up stalks. So yeah, this is just up like classic transplanted from West Africa rice cultivation being filmed in the 1940s. Yeah. And I just looked up Wiltown Bluff on the maps. And yeah, those rice, those rice parcels are like super well defined just across from where they are. So yeah. As a historical document, this thing is incredible because number one, you get really good technical info on how they're doing just the day-to-day like manual stuff. Given the choice, I would choose to automate this process as a like a social artifact. It, it starts off like a classic home movie. You're like, oh, family, pastoralism. What? It just yeah, really like they literally this. roll into the shot. <laughs> they just look it around and the guy like rolls in on like the car and it's like, wait, what? Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> Across the screen, here it comes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it just, it really captures, like, this is the thing that I was constantly grappling with, like, as a modern person who, like, works in agriculture, but was not, like, I'm not in a landed family, but you're white, so people treat you like you're on the inside, and it's interesting. They just say all kinds of things to you. But, like, it just really captures the vibe of working in agriculture, which is, like, it's so lovely, and outside, and what? That's it. (laughs) That's it. They nailed it. So, if you want to go and look out that video, it's not great that People were still holding people captive on their plantations and making them manually rice, thresh rice in the 1940s. But if they were going to do it, we have evidence. And that is cool. That is cool. And I'm looking this up here and estimating. Yeah, the, the location where the video was shot is about seven miles from where the Stono Rebellion ended. Oh, isn't that and interesting? So very much in like the same neighborhood. Hmm fascinating yeah wow well i think it's interesting that they're headed down to spanish florida because i don't know if the seminole tribe was up and going yet but that was when you needed to leave that's where you went it is yeah the team's talking about the underground railroad going north i mean the first one went south there are a lot of opportunities in spanish florida that sometimes it's free-ish and sometimes it's actually free but yeah you can go down there um there are different laws that came out in the 1680s that offered relative freedom to any English enslaved people who can make it down there in exchange for their military service and other domestic and infrastructure work. And several people availed themselves of that option. And it was a super bonus for the Spanish Floridians who believed that the South Carolinians were in their space as a violation of a treaty anyway. And so if you're going to come back and scare people off and have some military raids who better to staff your raids than people who used to live on the plantation hey person who's escaped do you know where you know lieutenant governor lives awesome we want to go attack and since you know the way you know why don't you leave the thing and then at the same time go see if you can liberate your cousin or something like that and so yeah highly motivated and again knowledge there you have knowledge of the terrain you have knowledge of the politics and situation. So that stuff is valuable, even outside of slavery itself or any sort of imperialistic colonizing nation. You know, knowledge is something uh, that if you don't have yourself, it's certainly something that you want to take over and control mm-hmm. um, yeah. for your own ends. Can you imagine like, you know, you get loose and then you're like some guys in your new place ask you, hey, do you want to do some rating on that 
dirtbag place you used to work and you're like cool sign me up then you get there and you're like hey hey old work buddy let me in the gate candy from a baby yeah you need to have an in that really just really just helps coming from the crop science angle so like so i do this thing which in history they call it presentism and you're not supposed to do it and i'm just always constantly doing it because i can't help it because like in agriculture it's not like we do things differently now because the future happened. It's because the economic incentives now are just different. And if the incentives now were like they were back then, we'd still be doing the same thing. You know, like there's a lot of places in the world where just manual harvesting of things and processing is still the norm because that's what the economic incentives are. So when I look at this stuff, it doesn't feel like you're looking into the past. It just looks like you're looking into like different economic conditions. And so like I'm probably like a little too prone to being like, oh, yeah, that's relatable. Um, but it also kind of is. Just just for context, when we had Russia invading Ukraine this last spring, everybody panicked about, is there going to be enough wheat? Unbeknownst to apparently everybody in the West, India's really been increasing wheat exports for the last few years. Like It was actually getting to the point where there was too much of it and it was piling up and starting to rot. And they're like, we have to export this. So for them, the invasion happened at just the right time. But they're pumping out millions of tons of wheat and it's almost all harvested by hand, harvested and threshed by hand. How many millions of people does it take to do that job? Like I... I don't even want to think about it. It's crazy. But that is like an entire national wheat industry that's filling a huge, huge part of the global market right now for wheat. And it's just completely done by hand. Wow. Yeah. I don't know what that has to do with anything. It's just when I see people doing like crop work by hand, I'm just kind of like, oh, yeah, sometimes it's like that, you know, <laughs> yeah, just, it's, sometimes yeah. it bees like that. Mm -hmm. and, and in the U.S., there's a lot of parts of agriculture that still haven't been automated because it's just hard to teach machines how to pick fruit without squashing it. So that has a big part in like how agricultural labor works. Grain is just really easy to automate because you can't bruise dried grains. So it's like one of the first things that got automated, like the Romans had primitive wheat combines. So that started super early. But something that's getting automated right now in the U.S. is like the hatch chilies in New Mexico and Colorado. And if you, yeah. if you say New Mexico and Colorado to farmers in either one, they'll get mad at you. They're like, no, only my state. <laughs> But like ever since the U.S. economy tanked in 2008, it's been less of a winning proposition for people to move from Mexico to the U.S. to do farm labor. And so our farm worker population is going down. The age is going up and new people aren't getting into it because I don't know if you heard, but it's a terrible job. Imagine that. Yeah. And the ways that white landowners are coping with it are like really something to watch. Like being in the industry is seeing this firsthand. According to the theories of supply and demand, if there's not enough labor, you would simply pay more for it. Obviously, that's what must happen. That is largely not what happens. <laughs> so what happens is they automate or they're resorting more and more to prison labor is what's really happening because the rent -a gang system is just, like you mentioned, it's that addictive. It's happening I all think over the, again. The ideas of automation you know, drove a lot of the, the ending part, I think, of large-scale rice culture. A lot of strains were pushed aside. Mm -hmm. based off of what could be you know, mechanically milled versus the type of things that you relied on the knowledge of the labor for. And if you look at rice like worldwide, the reason that you see sort of Asian strands of rice kind of become dominant in most of the world, again, is because of the automation stuff. Mm -hmm. So this one goes automatic. So let's just get this. Is it the best? No. Does it taste the best? No to the point now that there's a scale only asian rice or rice of sativa wheat maize and potatoes 
are the main things. It's followed by a sorghum and pearl millet from Africa. Mm-hmm. Right. And so Africans used to be at the top of, you know, contributing to world human food production, but then machines. Yeah. So some further input on that. The milling technology from one or two centuries ago probably, yeah, would not handle glabarama very well, but we could probably do it now. The thing is, like, we just already have all this milling equipment designed for, right. you know, sativa and indica rice. Again, to kind of take it back to the, like, nobody respects food handling thing. <laughs> I just, I see people spend so much money on tractors, and then you're like, have you considered, like, if you want to make more money, instead of selling your grain to a silo, you could grow something a little bit different. The silo is not going to take something different because they can't put it in the big silo with the same thing everyone else is growing. So if you want to grow something different, you have to invest in your own storage and your own little hauling machine. You have to have your own processing equipment, right? My viewpoint is farmers who are in it to win it will do this. (laughs) And if they're in it for a property management side hustle, they will not. And that turns out to be the majority of farmers. So the key to actually making a living in agriculture is to do processing. That's where the value is. Like That's where the majority of the time that it takes to make food <laughs> is invested in, right? So like, of course, that's where it gets the most money. That's not because agribusiness came over and forced prices down. That's just literally how labor and agriculture works, right? That's too much work, right? They think their tractors were sexy. I think I heard the song. Yeah, well, like- told me that, that was true. That's the thing is tractors are sexy and like mills aren't, you know? <laughs> so like, that's that's literally what happens, right? Well, don't um, see my mill? No. Um, no. Yeah, I'm like, that's <laughs> like, yes, okay, grind right. that grist. Okay. But yeah, like that's where the actual value in, in the food chain is, is in handling, processing, and distribution. And I have like entire episodes that I've done about how like white men don't respect that because it feels too much like cooking. And they're like, well, it can't be real work because if this was real work, then women's work is real work and they should get paid. So we just can't think about that. So like when we're talking about like various forms of labor and how they get typecast to certain people and therefore they can or can't be worth anything, there's just layers, right? So there's a chronic underinvestment in food processing, which is part of why we're so locked on like these five staple crops. Like that's like if you work in agriculture and actually deal with the logistics, that actually becomes very, very clear. But I don't see people really talking about it. They're just kind of like agribusiness only likes these five staples. And I'm like, do you have any idea why? Do you have any idea what farmers involvement is in that? Nobody tied them to a post and said, you can only sell to the big agribusiness guys. They have access to loans. They could diversify into processing and do different things. They just don't want to. So like they don't see that as real labor. That's valid for some reason. You got it. And then everybody's like, oh my God, we're like trapped by agribusiness because we can't have any new ideas. (laughs) So that's the thing that I'm frustrated about, which is why I just talked about it for five minutes. But it goes back a long ways. Like these attitudes are so deeply ingrained. And I think we're really in a habit of like blaming technology or like climate for the way our agriculture turns out. There's very determinism going on here. Yeah. And I'm like, it's our social arrangements that got us here. It's what we think is worthwhile and what isn't. That's exactly true. I agree 100%. (sighs) I got lost on the Chili's tangent. Oh, yeah. New Mexico. New Mexico. Um, So... 99% Invisible is another podcast, and they did an episode on this. So they interviewed me for it, which is how I found out it was happening. But this is mentioned in a different part of the podcast that I'm not in, and you should still listen to it. They interviewed a farmer. So what's going on is the Chile farmers in Colorado, New Mexico are having a hard time getting labor. It's like a very familiar story in ag right now. And they're like, it's so hard to hire, and you can't find good help these days, blah, blah, blah. We're going to try and invent a machine that can pick chilies. But it's hard to do because they have a really thick stem. So you can't just pull them off the plant. You have to, like have some kind of thing go in there and like nip the stem off. But then you need machine vision. You need to breed chili plants that have a thinner stem. Like you've got to do something to make that doable, right? 
So they're working on that. But just like off the cuff, they interview some farmer and he says something that sounds like it's not related, but I'm like, this is the best part of the entire episode. He's like, when I was a kid, this is what was normal. When it was time to pick the chilies, we'd wake up in the morning and the crew would just be waiting there in our driveway because they're migrant workers. And so they know where the gigs are and when they happen. So like when they finish up the last gig that happens like seasonally before it's time to pick chilies, they go to the chili place, right? So these farm workers, who I'm sure everyone was convinced are unskilled labor, what are they also doing? Administrative labor. They're handling scheduling. They're handling recruiting. The farmer doesn't have to deal with any of that. They never learned how to hire labor. Because they're used to literally waking up in the morning and it's there. Mm. So, yeah, they're serving also this really important timekeeping and recruiting function by being migrant labor who, like, knows what the job schedule is. So this is across the board, I find, in U.S. agriculture. Farmers who have to hire labor are actually really bad at it. They don't know what recruiting is. They don't know what training is. They're used to skilled people showing up on their doorstep at just the right time. And when that doesn't happen, they're like, the world is ending. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't think they realize that, like, this is a skills gap that I have. That's not how they see it. They're like, the world is out to get me. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's certainly 100% the deal these days. You can't find good work. No, it's probably not it. Yeah. I was recently at some kind of clutch of farmers and one of the farmers was complaining about how when they when they hire people to pick their strawberries, they're like, well, they come and they don't already know how to pick strawberries and we have to teach them how to pick strawberries. What is the world coming to? And I was like, how much time do you think the manager at McDonald's spends going? These people I hired don't already know how to run a deep fryer. I can't believe I have to train them how to run a deep fryer. There's a lot more deep fryers in this world than there are strawberry fields. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And yet it's understood Indeed. that as a manager, it's your job to train, isn't it? And you see this in plantation rice as well. The people who are in charge of the exporting and you're in charge of the land purchase or any of that, or who are in charge of purchasing the labor, the slave driver is the one who knows all that stuff. All the stuff about like how to train to do these things or how to get people to do things and all the greater productivity work. So yeah, I think it's just interesting how people are divorced. Even in smaller situations, how divorced you can be from the actual work process and how that sort of alters your view of your purpose in getting into the business in the first place, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, again, like to take it back to Accounting for Slavery, it's a really, it's a great book. So the the author, Caitlin Rosenthal, worked at McKinsey for a while. And then she was like, well, I'm bored with this. I'm going to go become an historian. So she's studying the history of slavery. Yeah, and like, yeah, she was studying the management techniques. And she was like, we taught people this at McKinsey? <laughs> <laughs> so she's like, oh, I better investigate this and just come to find out. Like you mentioned, like the overseer job was a real job. Boy, was it ever. So a lot of the way it was filled, the stereotype that we have now is like, oh, it must have been local white trash. No, because you have to be literate to like keep records. So like if you're supervising, like the whole point of administrating beatings to get people to work faster was because you had a work schedule and like quotas to meet. You have to be literate to handle the quotas, right? So this was like kind of a white collar internship job is what it was. Like these were management internships. So the job ads when they were advertising for like a slave driver, they called a bookkeeper was the name of the job. Like nobody said like, yeah. we need you to come whip some people around. And then like frequently also like for like day-to-day stuff, they would also like delegate a lot of the supervisory stuff to an enslaved person who lived there. Again, often teaching them to read and write to get that done. But that was another reason there was incentive to like teach people to read and write was then because you don't have to hire a white supervisor. <laughs> 
because interns cost a lot of money. So yeah, for sure. And that's definitely where some of the mixed race ancestry people show up as well, who aren't quite in the house and not quite in the fields. And a lot of these children of slave owners by enslaved women also find themselves in that sort of bookkeeper role with the idea that there's a little bit more relatability amongst the enslaved labor population. And then some people say, well, I should at least teach the person how to write. I mean, <laughs> you were conceived yeah. in these really bad circumstances. And now you're here. Okay, well, you're not going to be free and stuff like me. Here, I will teach you how to write or something and then go out there and be with your cousins or something like that. Yeah, it's... Right. Well, it's like yeah. a, you don't fit in with like the owner family and you don't fit in, right. with, you know, the enslaved staff. What's the right place? Middle management, you know. Exactly. <laughs> not cool enough to get invited to a Christmas party, but everyone still hates you. That's Lower right. down. You don't get invited to happy hour and you don't get invited to the Christmas party. You just kind of sit at Applebee's alone. You know, there's no happy jobs in this industry. I don't know. It's the weirdest thing. So the thing about like bookkeeping slash beating people to accelerate labor, being a white collar internship kind of thing. After you do that internship, then what do you do? You go start a factory somewhere else. <laughs> and so like a big part of accounting for slavery is just like, wait, how did all these slavery management techniques wind up in the normal like canon of Western business culture? Like, how do we go from this to MBA school, basically? Um, yeah. And she was like, oh, it was these internships. That's how the, all these practices became standard Western business practices. U.S., Canada. A lot of Europe, too, like the reason they had all these like socialist revolutions in Europe was because they were bringing like a lot of the industrial revolution, like what we call that. A lot of things were actually more industrialized, I think, in the late medieval Renaissance period than we think. What we're calling the industrial revolution was the addition of coal, but also the introduction of slavery management techniques to white people. And then they were like, ah, doesn't feel great, does it? Yeah. I didn't think the leopards would eat my face. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, I'll check that out. <laughs> it's a great book as somebody who like does agricultural management quite a bit i was like oh we're both seeing this okay good <laughs> yeah part of my postdoc was getting loaned out to local farms just like to do field work it gave you the badge as well did you get a registration number yeah the rent a person system is alive and well like postdocs oh, yeah. yes because like what happened was like uf their research farm had a contract with the the marion county prison system so they had inmates so, like, that's a whole story on its own. When you think prison convict labor on farms, you're like, ugh, hardened criminals, chain gangs. No, these were, like, gamers, weed and Xbox kids who had never done yard work in their life. They were so clumsy, God bless. And it was just like, oh, like, in so much as anyone belongs in jail, which I don't really think is a thing, they were harmless. That's why they were allowed to go work outside under minimal supervision. And so Marion County really created this incentive for itself to, like, just arrest as many kids as possible, basically. You know, 30-day census for minor drug charges. So, like, they don't stay there long enough to learn anything. So it's just this constant churn of, like, folks who have no idea what they're doing. So you're like a postdoc at the research ranch trying to be like, don't step on the plants that we just plant. Okay. <laughs> these kids research are like research ranch. Yeah. These kids are, like, living in jail. So you don't want to be like, ah, about it. Like, their life is already hard enough. But you're just like, oh, it's not optimal for, like, us or them. That was just, like, at the state like the University of Florida Research Farm down in Citra. But there were also like local farmers who partnered with the program. They're like, okay, you come up with new blueberry varieties. I'll try them out of my farm for years. I'll let them, like you guys do your trials and collect data. As a farmer, I'll let you know how I feel about these plants. Like how do they perform under like real farm conditions? So we had some partner farmers 
And we couldn't just loan them inmates because I think that was like that illegal that we couldn't do it. Or they would just actually have to pay for the warden's wages and they didn't want to do that. Yeah. So it was like, okay, postdocs. <laughs> <laughs> they could loan the postdocs. So it's true. Stay in school, kids. Stay in school. Stay in school so you can get loaned out to a local farm with a doctorate. <laughs> oh, man. I did not know that. That's very interesting. This is why you can't let people learn to read and write. <laughs> Step one. Women, enslaved people, all of the above. Yeah. Once your postdocs are literate, they find out what's happening. And <laughs> <laughs> They'll shut it down. Shut it down. There's like a quick tie-in I want to do here. Mm-hmm. So when I was a kid, we were growing up in Miami. It was Miami during the crack epidemic. So... You know, it was like very mixed race community. A lot of my classmates are black. And so they were doing this whole thing of like, did you know black kids can do science? Here's George Washington Carver. So like we mostly just learned like he did a lot of stuff with peanuts, right? We don't have any context for like, why are you running this giant research program on peanuts? They're just like, he invented peanut butter. And everybody's like, yay. So what was going on at that time was the South was getting hit with bull weevil and just like a real need to diversify away from cotton. And so they're like, what if we grew something else that wasn't cotton? So peanuts was a thing they were trying because peanuts are a legume. They make their own nitrogen, all that kind of thing. But if you're going to rotate cotton with peanuts, that means you have to grow like lots and lots of peanuts, right? Like that's a huge amount of acreage. And so if we're producing that much peanuts, what do we do with them all? Because people didn't really know. I think up to that point, it was kind of like if you have enslaved people living on your property and you gave them a food plot, I don't know, they grow some weird stuff in there and peanuts is one of the things. Like that was kind of the white people attitude towards peanuts at the time. Like, you grow it and you let the hogs loosen it. That's peanuts, you know? Right. So George Washington Carver was basically running a pretty early agricultural marketing campaign. Like, farmers just decide they want to grow lots of this thing. How are we going to decide what to do with it? So it's not a demand-led thing. It's not people want lots of peanuts, let's grow more. It's like, we want to grow peanuts. How can we throw them at the public? (laughs) So it's a very, like, white landowner first kind of concern. Like, how can the public better serve the white landowner by eating more peanuts? Let's find ways, right? So that is basically what he was tasked with working at, I think, was it University of Iowa, USDA? Well, I mean, most of the famous stuff is at Tuskegee, but I don't know what the posting were before that. Yeah, like, I think he went to Iowa for his own studies and then did Tuskegee later, so. That makes sense. Well, I learned in school. So he's just, yeah, he's just like... Finding all these different uses for peanuts is basically his job, right? Because, well, the plantation owners need a fix. Highly trained black knowledge worker. Can you find a way to make this work? And so George Washington Carver is kind of, again, like he was kind of taught to us as like, oh, you know, black people can do science too. And now that I know more about how the agricultural system was working, like before science got really professionalized, I'm like, oh, he's like a bridge between like the old school, like enslaved black knowledge workers and then like the college educated nerds we have doing it now. Like he's just a bridge figure between those two worlds of knowledge. That's really interesting to me. Yeah. And super on purpose too. I mean, that's mm-hmm. a lot what Tuskegee is for. And Booker T. Washington goes out and makes a speech about the buckets where you are in the Atlanta exposition and then sets up this whole thing. It's like, I just have this program where we can actually get on. They want this stuff. You guys come in and then you're going to give us money and then to tell them about themselves. <laughs> and then we get to do this stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. So yeah, definitely. I'd never thought of it in the peanut way specifically for it, but that makes, that, that vibes. Yeah, it's just one of those things, like the more you get to know about 
how agricultural knowledge worked in the old timey times, you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> the way agricultural knowledge workers nowadays are framed is, oh, those pinheaded nerds. And there was the rise of experts in the mid-century when everything got corporate. And I'm like, that's when you had to start paying them. <laughs> <laughs> right. Isn't that yeah. funny how that works? Yeah. Yeah. This is what happens when you give somebody a postdoc and they make them go work in the field. They just have lots of time to think about stuff. <laughs> like part of the postdoc was learning how to work on your hands and knees all day without breaking yourself. There was like this old redneck guy named Dave who was like, it's not a race. <laughs> you make it all look bad. Right. Well, no, that wasn't the thing. Like he was like, he's like an older dude. Right. And he was like outworking all of us. And we're like, how do you do it, Dave? And he's like, uh. yeah, he's like. You'll get there. Just settle down. <laughs> Sit down now. <laughs> it's like, you'll learn how to be faster if you don't try to go so hard right now that you break yourself. And I was like, that's a very important lesson, Dave. Thank you. So my back still works. Thanks to Dave. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> Shout out to Dave. But yeah, like that's the peer-to-peer -peer learning, right? When we talk about like different demographics have different agricultural skills and different roles in the sector, it's not because there's like yeah. a gene for being good at farming. That's not a thing. There's not a gene for knowing how to grow rice or tomatoes or anything else. It's just, are you actually in there getting that peer-to-peer -peer education with how a job works? And a lot of people didn't participate in that to get that skill set. Right. Florida, the stuff you learn at UF. Go Gators. Yes. <laughs> and that's exactly where my mind was going. It was going. I was like, Florida. It's weirder every day. It does. Yeah. It really <laughs> you does. You think you figured out all the weird. No, there are new aspects. Yeah. Well, like, again, like working with folks in tech, like I've got a colleagues in, you know, like real science, you know, where there's, there's like actually a chance that you might get a Nobel Prize someday, right? So they try to aspire for that. This is like a foreign idea in agriculture. Like nobody gets into fertilizer science because they're like, I want to be famous. <laughs> and so you hear about a lot of like the bizarre, like abusive dynamics that can really crop up in these super prestigious situations where people are willing to put up with a lot of stuff in order for like a chance of doing cool things or whatever, which was very right. foreign to me in agriculture. And I'm like, oh, we don't have that stuff here. And then you're like, I got loaned out to work for free at local farms. <laughs> There's a story of a guy who came and was walking around South Carolina in the early 1800s. And he was looking and taking tours of different plantations. And all these plantations, he noticed that the plots of land or like the rice parcels that were run by the enslaved people themselves, their private plots, were significantly more meticulously maintained and appeared to be more productive than the main stuff that they were supposed to be working on. And part of that reason, he believed, was that the other stuff was for export and no one cared, but the stuff that they grew on their own, that's how they made their money. And so that's the task system when you had your free day, which is often on the Sunday, it'd have these things called the Negro markets, and you would go to the market and you'd sell your own stuff. And if you happen to work, and most people did work on rice plantations, obviously, but people got to showcase, oh, look at my rice. This is what I grew myself. Oh, she has the best rice. I'm going to go over there. And so it was a chance to sell stuff on your own. And I think that because of that, they were able to make significant money for themselves, unbeknownst 
to their slave owners because the slave owner is supposed to be a church. So what you doing at the Negro market on Sunday morning? You're supposed to be a church with the rest of them. And so there is a lot of pushback, actually, from people saying, why do we give them the free day? It's also the day where we have to be somewhere. Who's keeping an eye on the Negro market? Mm-hmm. Okay. Is this like part As of they like- sell to each other and do all this stuff, they could also be coming up with plans to overthrow us, which wasn't not the case. But it's also a chance to kind of make money into your community so you, you know, and have a little bit of autonomy, not just on the plantation, but in the market space as well. And then chance to sort of reconnect with different African styles of commerce. Great. Yeah. There's like so many different directions to go with this. It's like, we got to make them go to church so they can't like do things on their own. Yeah, there have been a lot of times of panic in U.S. agriculture when people who are supposed to be a subordinate class were, like, doing commerce amongst themselves and actually making money, and, like, white folks just panicked about it. That's, like, kind of a constant theme that keeps happening. That's a great example. I think it's actually, like, it helps explain why most of the produce in the U.S. is grown in California is because landowners in the South were, like, after emancipation, having your own private plot wasn't allowed anymore because they're like, well, if you can grow your own food, what do you need to work for me for? So that's where King Cotton came in. We're going to fill up all the land with stuff that's inedible. So you have to buy food from us and you can't be independent. If you have your own property, you're going to grow food for yourself and then also some to sell, right? So if you have a small amount of land, the thing you're going to grow is fruits and vegetables, like watermelon's a big one because it actually likes to live in the South. (laughs) Sweet potatoes, other things like that. They're marketable. People like to eat them. And so you can make a decent amount of money from a small plot of land with produce. Things like cotton, um, most of your bulk grains, not very high value. So to make a decent amount of money on them, you have to have lots and lots of land. If we have a social system where like primarily white men have access to land, especially large tracts, then an economy that is heavy on bulk, low value goods is going to favor white men because those are the only people who can make money on that because they have enough land to make money on it, right? So so growing anything else becomes a threat to white supremacy. (laughs) So in this time, like in the Jim Crow era, that was behind the effort to fill up all available land with cotton as much as possible and not let people grow produce because they could make too much money on small plots of land. And that was going to be a threat to the social order. So if your city is in the Northeast and you're trying to import produce any time of year, but especially during the winter, and the South is refusing to grow it for sociopolitical reasons, what are you going to do? So it's like... Built railroads out to California and imported stuff from there because it was literally easier to like build a railroad across a continent and import from California than it was to get the South to fix itself. So that's a recurring thing too. A lot of things are easier than getting certain regions to fix themselves. Yeah. Activism in the South is like, well, you can't not do it. And then you remember how many millions of people literally died trying to fix this place. And you're like, hmm. My home. It would be such a great place if it weren't for, like, you know, the way it behaves. I did not know about the the peanut thing. That makes a lot of sense, and that's going to alter how I teach that now. I mean, Because I used to get annoyed as a kid. I'm like, what? Really, they're telling us about, like, the one black scientist who did the stuff and it's peanut butter? Really? Okay, are you trying to pander to me? And say, hey, kid, you like peanut butter. Did you know a black man made that? Or, like, or what? Like, I'm supposed to be impressed? Like, what are we doing? And obviously, there's a lot more than peanuts. There are all sorts of things that George Washington Carver did. But the fact that peanut being a deliberate strategy, especially 
in Georgia slash Alabama. Makes a lot more sense now. Yeah. A lot. They're like, for this nation, crime people, we will, we're going to have to teach the white people how to do something else. George Washington right. Carver to the rescue. And then, like, yeah, I don't He's know. The like magical he, black person that fixes things. Like in the movies. <laughs> like, I feel like I saw this in a Coen Brothers movie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> George Washington Carver. Teach me how to do it. Yeah, but I mean, like, that's probably where the trope comes from, right? Is like, I don't know what I'm doing. Let me ask this guy, you know? Well, there's um, that. You know, they have, um, speaking of whiskey, you know, they have Uncle Nearest now. So Nearest Green is the African-American man who taught Jack Daniels how to distill and was um, instrumental in establishing the charcoal filtering process. Mm. And now, I mean, they call it Uncle Nearest, right? And so he's the the magical black man in the background is like, this is how you got to do it. You know, and, and it's not anything that Jack Daniels has tried to like uncover. And actually it's a great partnership between, you know, because nearest green, the uncle nearest is black owned company. And so the partnerships there has been good, but every, every industry has just, you know, your magical, magical black man. He's in bourbon. Yeah. Smallpox inoculation was one of those finding out that there were mammoths mm-hmm. in north america was one of those yes <laughs> you know benjamin banneker and the uh site plan for washington dc the agricultural plans matthew henson the north pole we could go on and on and on right like oh who's really doing the work people so like the indigo thing we talked a little bit about this indigo was used mm-hmm. widely across like the islamic world west africa you know middle east and through asia I mean, it just didn't really grow in Europe. It's so too in- colorful. Yeah, they wouldn't like it anyway. <laughs> it's like too saturated. They used a plant called woad, which had a similar chemistry to make a blue dye, but it wasn't as strong. Like they just didn't have that as much indigo dye in the plant. So a big part of the indigo industry story is Eliza Lucas Pinkney. Eliza Pinkney Lucas. Yeah. Yeah. Very special white girl was left in charge of a plantation in her teens or something. And she was like, I'm going to do good. Or like, I'm just going to like, I'm really going to make this place work. And so a big part of her idea was she realized that some enslaved people were growing indigo and using it just to dye their own clothes. And she was like, we can make a business out of this. So she makes some arrangements to like figure out how they're doing it because there's some weird chemistry going on with the indigo dye molecules where like it has to have a redox state um, at a certain level. So you have to run some fermentation to keep oxygen out and keep the pH at at the right level in the dye vat and all this stuff. And the way I've seen this presented is like, oh, this was knowledge that like Europe didn't have because, you know, indigo is grown in these other places. And then I'm like, the woad plant has the same dye molecules, though. So people in Europe knew how to do it, but they were probably in the dyers' guilds and they weren't telling, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So slavery in that case, like you can force people to tell you how they do things, which you can't do to guilds. So in that way, slavery was like a way around intellectual property protections. Isn't that great? Yeah. <laughs> so many connections in this country. Pick your haunting.